Thank you guys for tuning in and welcome to another episode of The Source, where we interview policy experts, former insiders or whistleblowers. I'm your host, Zan Raza. And today we'll be talking to journalist and award-winning filmmaker, Paul Jay. Paul Jay is also the founder of TheAnalysis.News, an independent media news site. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. Let us begin with your personal situation. How are things in Canada and how are you personally holding up during COVID-19? Uh, we're, we're kind of in a crazy good situation, really. I, I almost feel a little surreal when I read about the incredible suffering around the world. Uh, we were living in New York and we had a, a great deal of luck. Uh, our sister-in-law is a doctor who had just returned from Italy. This is back in early March. And she said what's happening in Italy is going to happen in the U.S. and the New York is going to get slammed. And so we were able to jump in the car. We headed to Canada. And we're in kind of rural Ontario now, quite isolated. So we're in quite a good situation. Uh, and uh, it's terrible how terrible it is in New York and other places. There's a huge debate taking place at the moment on the left due to Bernie Sanders' endorsement of Biden and whether to now vote for Biden to win against Trump. Before we get into this, I would like to take a step back and provide some historical context, especially relevant to uh, our German viewership coming also the young viewership. As a journalist, you've done a great deal of work on how progressive movements and figures have been sat on historically post-World War II by the democratic establishment over and over again. Could you provide us with some context on this issue? Uh, you mean, you're talking about the relationship of sort of the progressive socialist movement and the Democratic Party in the United States? Exactly. Well, let me, can I just step back a bit? Uh, in, in terms of answering that question. The United States is the heartland of global capitalism. It has enormous resources. And when assessing what's possible of the progressive socialist movement, um, one has to take into consideration the ability of the ruling circles in the United States to gather enormous financial resources when necessary. Um, so it, it, the potential breakthrough for a progressive movement, socialist movement in the United States is far more difficult than in countries, you know, they used to be described as the weak link in the chain of imperialism, Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Uh, United States is the strongest link in the chain because it's the home of, of the empire, the home of imperialism, whatever language you want to use. And you can see it now. They, with the pandemic hit and the country started to go into depression, uh, they just snapped their fingers and out come two, three, four trillion dollars. There's not too many other places that can do that. Of course, having the reserve currency of the world helps. You can, they, and, and they now know, they've learned, that they can just throw as much money as they need to to, one, keep the economy going, and two, to uh, subdue more serious social unrest. So the, the, the reason why I don't think there's been a bigger breakthrough of the mass movement is not because of who or what the Democratic Party is. That's a subset of the problem. The problem, the bigger problem is, is that the more people are doing well enough, I should say were doing well enough, in terms of financially, economically, than weren't. It doesn't mean there wasn't terrible poverty. And you know, I lived in Baltimore for 11, 12 years, some of the worst poverty in the United States. 
But Maryland didn't have the worst poverty in the United States. And even when you had an uprising in Baltimore uh, after the death of Freddie Gray, it lasted a few days, it petered out. Uh, on the other hand, it's amazing what happened there because thousands and thousands of African-Americans came into the streets and then thousands of white students who had never been touched by poverty came into the streets to support. But, but the majority of Maryland was doing okay. And so, you know, Engels made a very important point just bef not long before he died. Uh, he said, you cannot just create a mass movement. Mass movements don't arise because you organize them. You can organize sort of conscious sections of people. But if you're talking about a big motion, a big spontaneous motion that can be sustained, that happens because objectively people's life becomes unlivable or some issue catalyzes it in, in a very, very significant way. So in the United States, there's been like the anti-war movement around Iraq. That lasted a while. There were massive protests and demonstrations. But again, it petered out and it, because people go back to their lives. And on the whole, people went back to lives that for enough people, it was okay enough. It wasn't desperate. Now, we are entering a different situation now. Uh, we, we may be heading into, or maybe it's not even a maybe, uh, you know, heading into depression levels unemployment. Uh, sections of the people who never imagined they would live in poverty now may be living in poverty. So, you know, going forward, it's a very different situation. Now, the Democratic Party is an alliance, so, as the Republican Party is. Uh, the Democratic Party is primarily an alliance between section of sections of finance, uh, a political elite, and the big trade unions, who on most of whom, but not all, have become very slavish and subservient uh, to the uh, Democratic establishment. I mean, I once had a conversation with a guy who was a political consultant for steelworkers. And I asked him straight, I said, listen, you, your Democratic Party candidates can't win if the unions don't get people out knocking door to door, to door and picking them up and going to the polls. And, and many candidates need your money. Why do you just cede leadership to Wall Street, to finance? And his answer was very blunt. He said, because they're the only ones with the kind of money to stem back the far right hordes, which is how he saw the Republican Party. And, and that's there's some element of truth to that, at least there used to be, before all this online fundraising was possible. But the, the, the other part of it is that a big section of the union leadership get paid as if they're executives of big companies. You know, they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars and they have expense accounts and they have a lot at stake within the status quo. That all may change now because so many unionized workers may never get back to work again. Uh, and not only that, a lot of unionized workers, first of all, there's a far lot less unionized workers than there used to be. Um, but a lot of unionized workers may go back to jobs with lower pay and terrible working conditions, assuming they even get back, because who knows how long this thing lasts. So the big problem, to shorten this up, it's not the Democratic Party establishment that's to blame, and it's not people trying to organize a really progressive mass movement that's to blame. It's not the Sanders movement that's to blame. It's the objective balance of forces right now, which is the elites have had so much money. The digital revolution, computerization, 
because of the way it developed globalization and allowed, you know, in short, to use the uh, the Chinese working class to undermine the wages and working class. I mean, I should say to super exploit the Chinese working class and then undermine the strength of the American, Canadian, European working class. Uh, not only did that lower wages, but it also increased productivity enormously. And where did all the benefit of that productivity go? Well, everybody knows to that top stratum. Um, and, and with financialization, computerization gave derivatives and this incredible, ridiculous uh, derivatives market, which is what, six, seven times global GDP, the amount of speculation that's going on. Uh, finance has gotten so parasitical, but it's given them a lot of money to buy even further by politics and by senators and by members of the house. And it's not like it didn't go on. And this is a long American, that kind of corruption is a very long American tradition, uh, almost from the beginning of the country, but on steroids now. So the, the, what we need to do and assess going forward is now we're entering a situation which is more like perhaps the 1930s. A, a sustained deep depression, sustained large-scale unemployment and poverty, and this is very important, sections of the, of the population that have never been poor. It's, you know, the, issue, the, the idea of expectations is a very, very important part of assessing what's possible. You know, countries that have had decades and decades of poverty, and you can see it in Baltimore, never mind other countries, you know, after a while, people kind of give up. They don't really expect anything else. You're born into poverty. Your kids are born into poverty. You know, you kind of start accepting that's what the world is. But a large number of people in the American working class, mostly white, but not only, people of color, they have a decent life. And now they're not going to have one. So we're in a different moment now. And it's very dangerous I'm going to dig deeper into the points that you made, but before I do, talk about Bernie Sanders' greatest achievements and failures since becoming a major political figure. Well, his achievements, I think, you know, people have said, and I agree with it, I think uh, identifying the billionaire class as a class was a big deal. Uh, nobody in what became essentially mainstream politics even acknowledges there is a class society. There's a middle class. They all love talking about the middle class, uh, but there's no other classes. There's no poor. There's no rich. It's just a middle. So Sanders, by saying there's a, a billionaire class and identifying that as part of the problem is a big is very important. I think he could have gone a little further to explain systemically why there's a billionaire class. But still, for someone who can get into an election, get a lot of votes and gets a certain amount of television coverage, that's a big deal. The fact that he talked about socialism. That's a big deal in the United States, uh, maybe less in Europe, but here because of the Cold War effect, uh, you know, socialism was practically a taboo to talk about it. And uh, he helped make that part of a legitimate discourse. And now you see in the polling amongst people under 35 and 40 years old, uh, many people consider socialism uh, more and better than capitalism. And within the Democratic Party, it's a significant majority of young people say they would prefer socialism. Now, what does that socialism mean? So that's, a, that's another question. I think the other thing he did, and he didn't originate this, but he did very well with it, is this online fundraising. Um, these political parties, 
Democrats, Republicans, and you know their equals in other countries, but especially here, they were never designed for a system or a world where the billionaires didn't control everything. And this part of the technological revolution, digital revolution, is it created this way to raise money that never existed before. And it's very threatening to the status quo. The, uh, you know, the fact that Bernie Sanders could raise you know, almost as much money or as much money as Hillary Clinton, he was raising more money for a while than Biden, um, that's a, a real threat to the system. And, and we'll see how that unfolds, but it's, 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 a, it's, it's a bit of a game changer that you can raise so much dough. Um, and he he did he did well with that. Uh, the other achievements I think everyone's talked about. He's certainly changed the discourse. Many of the other issues. Um, in terms of his weaknesses or limitations and such. Um, well, one obviously, and and this one I don't understand is why he didn't do better with African-Americans. I, I, I don't know it's because they didn't uh, spend enough time organizing there between 2016 and now. Um, I, I, I really don't understand it, to tell you the truth. I, I think they could have dealt with that. It's not to say that the uh, Democratic Party establishment's not very, very entrenched, especially through the churches and uh, through uh, you know black politicians in, in the South. Um, but I, I still find it hard to understand. Like, the, like for take Baltimore now. Baltimore wasn't a swing state primary, and but people of, of Baltimore. This is a Democratic Party uh, governed city. It's mostly a Democratic Party governed state, except now there's a Republican governor, but he's kind of like, in many ways, like a Democrat. Um, people, the poor, the workers, they don't like the Democratic Party in Maryland. I certainly don't like the Democratic Party establishment. Now, they don't dislike it enough to vote Republican. You can't get elected in Baltimore. You couldn't get elected a dog catcher if you're a Republican. That said, um, a, a Sander-esque campaign with building alliances amongst the African-Americans, which, which I really didn't see. Um, so so I, that was a weakness, and I, and I don't have an answer for it because I don't get why that Maybe I don't just don't understand the situation well enough. In terms of messaging, I I guess I'm not sure whether this is a critique of Sanders or not, because I've never had to run for office, and I can't say whether tactically he could do what I'm about to suggest. But I certainly think the Sanders movement, the broad progressive movement, a popular movement, I think we should talk the way I'm about to talk. And that is, I don't think Bernie talked enough, or hardly at all, about public ownership. The, the health, Medicare for all, and all the reforms he talked about, um, it's, they're very significant and they need to be fought for. But look at the countries that do have universal health care. They're still governed by the financial elites. There's still poverty, there's still unemployment. So yes, Universal healthcare is a great achievement, and it certainly makes life better for the people in the countries that have it. And I grew up in Canada, and we have it. But one in, one in four children in Toronto live in poverty. So, yes, they can get healthcare, and that's a big deal when you're poor. What I'm getting at here is that Sanders, while he identified the billionaire class, 
He didn't actually uh, provide a vision of how we're really going to weaken the billionaire class because it's not about them paying a fair share. There's no such thing as fair share. There's nothing fair about having a billionaire class. There's nothing fair about it. So it doesn't matter how much taxes they pay. It ain't going to be fair. And we shouldn't use language like that. That kind of inequality is fundamentally unfair. But you got to, you, we, we have to, and I think we need to start to imagine what would a really popular progressive government look like? Let's say, and, and I know I'm imagining, and I know this may not be possible right now, but who knows? We're entering uncharted waters, so maybe soon it will be possible. If you had a government that was popular, progressive, one of the first things you have to do is create a, a on a big scale, a public banking system. All right, Paul, Paul let me Go cut ahead. you off here because I have that part in the last section. So I want to okay. just stick to that, but let's talk about the vision in, in the last part of this interview. Um, here's the argument. So I've talked to Glenn Greenwald and I've been looking at uh, progressive YouTube channels such as Secular Talk and uh, Jimmy Dore. And there's this one section of young people which has been like, um, is against voting for Biden because they have had enough of voting for the lesser evil. And when I talked to Glenn Greenwald, for example, he said, yes, there were shenanigans of the Democrats, but we knew that, uh, historically speaking. We saw that in 2016, um, and we've seen how Democrats have squandered political capital on Russia Gate, then Trump's impeachment, and then also eventually in stopping Bernie uh, in this election. So even Bernie has been very critical about the media. So given all that, you know, he's got universal name, prestige, and a funding model, which you just talked about. Isn't Bernie Sanders somewhere to be held accountable? Um, no, that's one part of uh, the question. The second part of the question that I want you to address is, um, we saw that with Hillary Clinton, and we've been seeing that over and over again. Isn't this voting for the lesser evil shifting politics to the right? Well, nothing shifted politics more to the right than Trump. Um, this, the idea that uh, Trump is not to the right of Clinton or Hillary Clinton, I think is false narrative. Now, is Hillary Clinton even more a militarist than Obama? Yes. Um, but I don't know exactly where Biden is. is like, again, let's back up a step. We should stop talking about these uh, individuals, whether it's Bernie or even more so Biden or Trump, um, Trump represents a certain section of capital, and so does Biden. So when I say we should defeat Trump, which obviously means then you have to vote for, Bur uh, for Biden because there's no other way to defeat Trump, um, I would never not explain, like if I'm knocking on doors, I would knock on doors in support of a popular movement I would explain the aims and ob objectives of that popular movement, which means a real vision of what America or Canada, whatever the country is, what a vision could be if there was really public ownership and really progressive policies on climate, on nuclear weapons and such. I would explain what I really thought about Biden. You know, that he, you know, he's a liberal face of the billionaire class. Um, the inequality that grew under the Obama-Biden administration set the table for Trump. We'd never have a Trump 
If Obama, uh, Obama had, Biden, had, Biden did repeal Glass-Steagall and one of the biggest corporation, MBNA, uh, is uh, one of the biggest credit card corporations, I believe. They're based in Delaware, was one of the biggest funders of Biden and Biden voted, for example, to repeal Glass-Steagall Act, you know. So people have a hard time voting for someone knowing that he will uh, turn around and destroy the popular movement. So make an argument of why you still think that people, young people should vote for Biden, knowing that he's historically always supported uh, financialization, for example. There's nothing progressive about Biden. This isn't an issue of whether Biden is progressive or not. It's not an issue of uh, whether Biden's history proves that there's, uh, he has merit or not. Um, all the critique of Biden on the whole is, is correct. Although there are some things that he did uh, support that are not as, as aggressive on the global stage as some other sections of the Democratic Party. Uh, for example, Biden actively supported the Iran deal. Uh, the Chuck Schumer wing of the party was very opposed to that deal. Uh, uh, Biden apparently opposed Obama, disagreed with Obama, investing a trillion dollars in new uh, nuclear weapons. It's, that's been reported. He was against that. Uh, he was for dropping the sanctions on Cuba. On the other hand, he's, his aggressive rhetoric against China, like that ad that just came out, uh, he's taken a very aggressive posture towards Venezuela. So it, it, what we need to assess is not Biden the individual. We need to assess whether the section of capital that Biden is the political figure for is less aggressive, less, not that it's not aggressive. Is it less aggressive? Would there be more room for a progressive movement to organize than Trump and the section of capital he represents. Like, let's take an example. Robert Mercer, who's the billionaire that really financed Trump and got him elected. Steve Bannon worked for Mercer. Kellyanne Conway worked for Mercer. Uh, Mercer owned Breitbart News. If your European viewers don't know it, it's a very far-right web news platform that helped elect Trump. Um, it was reported in the Washington Post today that these protests that are taking place in different states calling for an end to the uh, uh, quarantine and calling it all a fraud and saying COVID's a conspiracy to hurt Trump and all that. Guess whose money is behind that? Robert Mercer. This is, these are fascists. These are the kinds of people that, you know, that have guns and when things really break out, these are real fascist forces. And, and Robert Mercer is, is one of the guys funding them. The, Sheldon Adelson, some of the most reactionary elements of this, these oligarchs are all surrounding Trump. Some of the crazy right-wing ideologues from Steve Bannon's not out of the picture, the Pompeo, the, the, do you know that, that something like, what is it, 20% of Trump's support, maybe more, are evangelicals, and of those evangelicals, not all support Trump by any means, but a significant amount of his support, and they're in the military, it's very important at this point, they welcome the apocalypse. They're completely anti-scientific in terms of the pandemic, climate change, at least the, the Biden section of capital recognizes that there actually is a climate crisis. You can at least have a discourse within the context that there is such a thing. Um, it's a difference between a, a very serious authoritarianism, 
I think Trump is a kind of Mussolini type figure, except Mussolini was probably smarter. Um, but but what what Trump has done and these the section of the very far right of the uh, working of the uh, oligarchy, but large sections of Wall Street now appreciate that Trump is able to dupe a large section of the working class into the most aggressive policies, whether it's on taxation, completely undoing the social safety net. Now, these people want to return the United States to pre-New Deal America. I mean, if they had their way, they'd probably go back to slavery. Um, so it's, it's a very dark force. It really should not be underestimated. And on two questions, and if everything actually in the world, and it doesn't matter what you talk about, boils down to these two questions. How is it going to affect the issue of climate change? Where, what, is, what scenario is more likely that there'll be, at least, there'll be something done about climate and at least you can have a discourse about it? And two, the issue of nuclear weapons, which doesn't even get talked about, but Trump is actually talking about the tactical use of nuclear weapons. But you talked about aggressiveness and here again comes an argument that, for example, the section of capital that's behind Biden, as you are stating, um, did push Biden to vote for the Iraq war as a Senate chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. Biden claimed, for example, we had no choice but to eliminate the threat from Saddam Hussein. Um, given this background that we have of Biden, How can we determine that he will be less aggressive uh, with Iran once he comes to power? I mean, the military-industrial complex doesn't differentiate between Iraq or Iran or the section of capital that uh, um, is now supporting uh, Trump will probably pressure Biden. And I think given what Biden will come into, let's say people vote for him and he comes into presidency, how can we be so sure that he will not be as aggressive, if not more? I mean. Also, we cannot forget it was under the Obama in this administration, which Biden was part of, that the Asian pivot was. And if we're talking about nuclear weapons and if we're talking about World War III, which you are stating as a threat, um, these two things like the Asian pivot and the Iraq war or, or the capitulation of Biden maybe changing his position on Iran when he comes to power could also pose a threat to humanity. How do you assess these arguments? Well, of course, that's all true. It's possible. But if you go on the record, Biden has and continues to support the Iran deal, as I said, even when sections of his own party were against it. I, I interviewed Larry Wilkerson yesterday. It's going to be up on the analysis later today. And he worked on that Iran deal. He, he was brought in kind of like as a consultant, and then he helped lobby Congress. He said m much of the Democratic Party was against that deal. And Biden was out there fighting for it. He was one of the per he was the main guy who had to uh, get the votes together in Congress. Um, does that uh, see? I I think this goes down to that. There's a section of capital that sees there is a role for government in having a, a a broader vision in the interest of the whole class. That means the oligarchy. And they need, and that the Iran deal was in the interests of the oligarchy. It may not have been what Netanyahu wanted. It may not be what the militarists wanted, but for the American ruling class, the Iran deal deal on the on the whole was good for it. And and a lot of the Pentagon at the time supported it. The professionals in the State Department all supported it. I'm not trying to suggest that the that section of capital, Biden and such. They are aggressive. They are very capable of doing some terrible things in the world, and they have. I mean, the Vietnam War 
you know, that's a, that's the Democratic Party and, and war after war under Democrats. It's not about are they progressive or benign. It's about we only have a, a binary choice here. There isn't a third choice unless people, you know, people are worried about feeling better about themselves. Great. But if that's how you're going to vote, you know, it, it, you know, if you allow a, a real overt authoritarianism, overt fascism, and then you're going to feel better about yourself because you didn't vote for a, a, a Biden who is without doubt reactionary. Uh, I, it's crazy to me. I don't get I, I cannot even fathom the argument. Let me just make one other one other point here. What will happen once Biden gets elected will all depend on two things. Because there is no doubt in my mind that unless, number one, a mass movement develops, a popular movement develops out of the conditions caused by the pandemic, deep unemployment, and that mass movement is progressive and not fascist, because that's still an open question, then I think there's a possibility you could get Biden uh, to do some things that are reasonable. And, and, and it's another factor that's extremely important that doesn't get emphasized enough. How big a breakthrough in the, Congre in the House and even the Senate, but particularly the House, of progressive candidates. Like instead of this AOC and, and the handful that are there now, if that gets to be a, a larger number, that could be significant in terms of the politics of Biden. Um, I'm not expecting a progressive, like Biden in the uh, webcam thing he did with Sanders. He said he wants his administration to be the most progressive since Roosevelt. Well, he may want it. It may even be his intent. The odds of that happening are so slim because of the pressures and levers that finance and the military industrial complex have. But if there is a movement of in, in, bigger than anything in the 1960s, sustainable, conscious, that has demands that are, you know, possible, but really progressive. Maybe. But, but I'm telling you, the alternative of Trump is an absolute nightmare. So we, it's not like we have a choice here, except that people want to have it in their heads. Oh, I feel better because I didn't vote for this shithead Biden. I, w I would say one of the arguments that I hear uh, from the sections of the left, uh, especially I think it's a more of a generation, generational divide that we're seeing right now, is the following that had Bernie Sanders' campaign uh, started after 2016, which was should have been the turning point to see how uh, the DNC went behind and did everything possible, which WikiLeaks revealed, to uh, stop Bernie Sanders from becoming um, the head of the Democratic Party. Had he built an independent movement with his name and prestige, um, because you have limited time, limited resources in every election cycle, uh, that time runs out. And most of the time you're trying, uh, you're spending it fighting the democratic establishment. So had we used that um, time and resources to build an alternative movement with Bernie's prestige, AOC and other progressives would have joined and we would have had a formidable opposition. So the question becomes, when do we start? I mean, in Germany, it's not uh, a perfect model of politics, but you still have the Green Party, you have the Linke, the left, you have the uh, Liberal Party, you have the Christian Democrats, you have the Social Democrats, you, you have a spectrum across Europe, uh, even if they are uh, in some way or form um, 
subsiding to capital, there is more diversity. So when will America start building a formidable opposition and a true left? And this is where uh, I think the younger generation cannot, I think in my opinion, do this over and over again. So how do you assess that? When do we start with, when does this theory of lesser evil end? Where is the exit strategy? Well, there's two different questions there. When can you build a popular movement? What's prevented it up until this point that has some real clout? That's one question. The second question you're asking is when is the exit strategy from lesser evil? And I don't know. We'll see. I guess it gets, it's really the first question is the same question as the second. You know, in the United States, the, the force that could bring such a national movement together are the unions. And you could see a bit of it. The nurses union played a very important role in helping develop, even finance the Sanders uh, election and movement, uh, and a couple of other progressive uh, unions, the communication workers, uh, there were a couple of others that broke with the, the, the quote, labor aristocracy, the AFL-CIO that mostly in 2016 supported Clinton. Um, the fight in the unions is critical. They have membership, uh, even if they're a relatively smaller section of the working class right now, they have ability to talk to sections of the workers, and they are still in very strategic sections of the uh, economy. The most strategic sections are unionized, you know, whether it's telecommunications or transport or auto, um, they're unionized. And, and, you know, a lot of service workers are unionized too, but they don't have the same clout as workers in, in those, uh, those other areas. So the, the progressive left needs to pay a lot more attention to what's going on in the working class and especially in trade union politics, because there are there is a fight going on. There's a left within the trade unions. There there are progressive workers in the trade unions, and, and they've been fighting uh, these the right wing control of the unions for years. And it's sometimes very dangerous. People have been killed in this fight. Um, so again, these new conditions may change that. Uh, again, because in that higher stratum of the of the working class that has the power. They've also been getting paid really well on the whole, maybe recently not as well. But, you know, when I was a kid, people that worked in the in those sectors in the unions, their kids went to college. They, they'd even have a cottage that had two cars in the garage. You know, a, a section of the working class, not just the union leaders, the workers themselves, they did really well. And they, they really developed, a, you know, I'm all right, Jack mentality so that, you know, the auto workers had a great health care plan. And they didn't give a damn that nobody else had, it, you know, large other sections of the working class had no health care plan at all. Well, maybe now this might start to change. Number two, the left in the United States is so divided, so competitive. But I think it's a result of, to some extent, because the mass movement is not high enough level. But there's everyone's this. I can't say everyone, but there's just so much backstabbing and bad mouthing and uh and then it's very siloed city by city it's a very big country 
And, you know, every city seems to have its own micropolitics. It's very hard to get anything national going. In fact, almost the only real national force is the Democratic Party. That's that's part of the problem here. Um, but again, we're in a new situation now. Um, we may see uh, the coming together of, of progressive sections of the society into a, a broader, more unifying popular front that's independent of the Democratic Party. But this is where I think the argument needs to hang on. Telling people to vote for Biden to defeat Trump does not stop us from organizing a popular movement and telling people the truth about what Biden is. You know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And, and in the United States, at least, what I've been able to see, and the same things in Canada, um, it, you don't see much of a movement that isn't connected to electoral politics. You know, the actual organizing and the knocking on doors. Like I, I, I watched a congressional race in, in Pennsylvania uh, during the last con round of congressional elections. And there were a lot of the progressive left there knocking on doors, talking to workers, talking to Trump voters, establishing relations with people, all built around the candidacy of this very progressive candidate in uh, Lancaster and Lancaster County. And she was a Sanders supporter. Now, if you took that at, at least another step, so it wasn't just about voting for this person, but start to ask people to join something, join a popular movement, become a member of a popular movement. And then when it's in the interest of the popular movement, to vote for a specific candidate, you do it. It may be a candidate you actually really like, or it may be one you don't like, but you got to because the alternative's far worse. And that's, that's real. But there's nothing that says we can't build this popular mo movement and defeat Trump, which obviously means, you know, voting for Biden. And, and, and then we'll have to deal with that battle. I know the same argument was made about Obama and Obama himself said, oh, I'll be able to do what you guys push me to do. But he said that knowing, one, he would do nothing to use the movement that had been created to elect him. And he let that just dissipate. And he always knew he would. And two, the conditions for the kind of movement that could have pushed Obama didn't exist. You know, they're coming out of the recession. The economy's starting to do better. People were filled with naive hope about Obama. I, and I, you know, I never drank the Obama Kool-Aid and I'm not drinking any Biden Kool-Aid. I mean, I don't think there is much of Biden Kool-Aid, but there was Obama. Um, but we're in a real world here and lives are going to be lost, not just in pandemics. There's a coming battle here. This article I wrote, you know, get ready for the coming storm. There's going to be lives lost in this storm. This, this is not going to be, a, it's not just an intellectual construct here. And we, be, we better be realistic. Like even going back historically, um, as, as, as reactionary in many ways, the Kennedy administration was. It was militarist. It was aggressive towards the Soviet Union. It built up the American military industrial complex far beyond what anybody had imagined and so on. But Robert Kennedy did intervene on behalf of civil rights workers when they were in jail in Alabama and Georgia. Um, he saved some of their lives. Um, 
I, again, I don't want to make too much out of it, but it's not nothing. Obama pardons uh, Chelsea Manning. No, you wouldn't see that, you know, with a Trump. I mean, Trump is doing everything he can. And I'm not saying a Biden or, or Obama might not, but they're trying to destroy Julian Assange. And uh, and we should talk more about Julian. So so it's we're not talking about a progressive section of capital versus a fascist section. We are talking about a fascist section versus a less aggressive, somewhat less aggressive section of capital. And I, I, and I take your point. It's very possible Biden might do something horrible. I, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. Yeah, Noam Chomsky has been saying that there's um, small differences in power can have large consequences. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, so it's very difficult to make the case because I think I disagree with you on this point. But um, putting personal opinion aside, it's very difficult because many people have different issues that they prioritize. Some people prioritize Julian Assange as the primary issue. Some for people's war and peace. Now, if you look at from the perspective from a Pakistani American um, who's lost somebody due a dr drone attack, uh, which was done under Biden. So people have many different issues. That's why it's the question comes that I've seen under Trump, at least from the European perspective, and let me know how it was in Canada or in the United States since you've been there for a long time, at least from the European perspective, we were in activism Munich or uh, in other circles able to get people to become anti-war because all you had to say is Trump, you know? And people were like, yes, this is, we need to stop wars. Under Obama, this was impossible because everything Obama did, did feel like he had good intentions because of his rhetoric and the way he cosmetically um, cloaked things. We saw Medea Benjamin, uh, for example, trying to break one of his speeches and he was so eloquently uh, to sh uh, put her away out of the room. And we see Obama was a more, in my opinion, a hindrance to getting message across, to talk about drone attacks, to talk about economic policy or climate stuff. How, how was it in Canada and in America? Did more activism, political activism take place under Trump? Or um, do you feel that uh, that is not the case? Well, I, I think it, it's, you have to look at it more specifically uh, because, no, I don't think Trump created more political activism in Canada. Yes, more may, maybe anti-Americanism or something, but I, it didn't amount to much. It was just, you know, some people's opinions. Uh, the largest anti-war movement there was, was against the Democratic Party. And that was against Lyndon Johnson during the Vietnam War. Um, so the uh, idea that you can't have an anti-war movement with a Democrat in power, I don't think is, is true. Um, the, uh, there's no doubt Obama had a certain charm effect that dissipated opposition. But that's a problem for the left to deal with. Uh, that's an ideological problem. That's a psychological problem, practically. Uh, and if the left was better at messaging and not so split up between all these different issues, uh, then, then perhaps that could have been fought through. Uh, I know, you know, my work, I've never stopped critiquing Obama and, and lots of other people as well. Um, and again, I don't think it's primarily uh, a propaganda point that stopped the movement from developing. And, and Biden's got very little charm at all, so I don't think he's going to have much of a charm effect. But to compare that problem of the movement, and, and it is, a, I'm not saying it's not a problem, especially amongst African-Americans, Obama had a real influence. Um, but to compare that to the objective harm Trump has done, 
undoing even the, the minorest regulations on climate, on, EP, on uh, carbon emissions, opening up more oil drilling. You know, you know it's, I'm not saying there isn't something to the argument, but it, the, what Trump's done on climate he's exp is, is it could be the, you know, another four years of Trump and we're practically to 2030 and that's the end of, you know, we're being told that's the end of the window to do anything about this, assuming even that isn't optimistic on nuclear weapons. The fact that he's, uh, you know, and and the militarization and the complete just showering money on the Pentagon and the military industrial complex, and ir the aggressiveness towards Iran and 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 China. And I'm not saying Biden's rhetoric isn't aggressive, but I don't see why Biden would be too much different than Obama. And yes, the Asian pivot, you know, that is part of the American strategy, but never raised the uh, level of antagonism with China the way Trump has. So yeah, there's some propaganda problem if you have a Democrat in power. But one, if Biden really does shit, you'll see what happened in the 60s again. And that's against the Democrat. And, and, and so we know, I mean, I have not a shadow of a doubt in my mind that a second term of Trump and deep unemployment and deep uh, poverty and resistance in the United States, we will see the polar opposite of what happened in the 1930s. We will see what happened in, the United, in Europe, we'll see in the United States. We will see a type of fascism. I don't have any doubt about it. And I, it's very simple because all Trump has to do, and I still believe, and you know I believe that Dick Cheney and Bush um, knew 9-11 was coming and didn't stop it. And they, they, and they wanted this new Pearl Harbor. People know the argument from the project for new American century and all this. These are the same people around Trump. So my fear is, is even before the election, we could see some kind of false flag attack, uh, terrorist attack, an excuse to go after Iran. And if they think they might lose this election, um, I, that's, that's my greatest fear. I know Larry Wilkerson and others that I know that really know military affairs and such, they, that's their biggest fear that there's going to be, uh, an excuse to start a war with Iran. And there's, you know, there's deep belief in the United States political circles that wartime presidents always win elections. So he's trying to act like a wartime president with the pandemic, but that's not going to work because the truth of how how much he screwed up the pandemic issue is, is coming out. So that I think the threat of an attack on Iran is very serious. But I got to also say that if Trump gets elected, I cannot believe the people around Trump would allow the Iranian uh, government to be standing at the end of the next four years. And who knows what else... Uh, they, they would they would do in terms of uh, see it's not about Trump is a vessel. I don't know that Trump believes in anything except his own ego and 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 money and whatever, but he's a vessel for the darkest forces in American society. So I want to move to the vision part that you alluded to earlier, and I read your article um, and it stated about nationalization and public. Um, putting institutions such as uh, the military industrial complex, media into the public and even the financial sectors. And you even mentioned publicly run Walmart and Amazons. 
Uh, talk about this a little bit and also what do you make of the argument that putting things into the public hand uh, all of these sectors could lead to massive centralization, eliminate competition and create a massive bureaucracy monopoly um, and it would just change the face of ownership but you still have the, the real practice of monopolization. Well, the second question is a very uh, relevant concern, but let me deal with the first one first. I think what's, one of the things that's missing from the discourse in the American left and, and Canadian left for that matter, and I can't speak to Europe because I just don't know it well enough, um, or other countries where, where what I'm suggesting may be going on. There's not a vision to fight for. There's some policy issues to fight for, you know, Medicare for all, break up the big banks, although I don't think that's going to be very effective, even if you could, but still minimum wage, but that's not a vision of a new society. And there's lots of countries in Europe and Canada that have more or less have those things, minimum wage, um, healthcare and so on. The vision of a society that actually isn't run by the financial oligarchy, that needs to be talked about. And I don't know whether Bernie should or shouldn't have, because I don't know how do you, I've never had to win an election in mainstream US politics, so I, I can't say. But I think a popular movement needs to talk about it. And maybe if we work more on, a, on this vision of what society could be, We'll also get the left out of so many silos. And instead of making demands, like, like here's the other part, it's kind of connected to the earlier argument. Let's say you don't, let's say enough of the left don't vote for Biden and Trump wins. And then you're gonna organize the movement, right? Well, the most you'll ever be able to do is make demands on a Trump administration which he'd completely ignore. Not to say Biden might not, or probably would, but all you, you, it's not about taking power. You, know, you can say it's about taking power, but it isn't really. The, uh, because the electoral politics in the United States in any short-term way is not allow a third party. So what you can do is at very best, have a, some protests in the street and demand this and demand that, but you're asking the oligarchy to do something. You're not taking power away from them. So I think we need to have a more unifying vision of the kind of society we're fighting for and not you know, so utopian that it's so far off you can't even imagine it. But, but something that if you had a, a president, House, Senate, and same thing in other countries, if you had actual control of the government, what would you do with it? If you had to govern on behalf of the majority of the people in a real world where you're going to be surrounded by enemies, very, very powerful enemies, what would you do if you had to govern a city? If you, we're seeing a bit of that in, in you know, we saw that there's a progressive government in, uh, in Barcelona and Spain, and you probably know more about that than I do. You know, there's been some breakthroughs, but once you get elected, I mean, we saw this with Chavez. I mean, Chavez got elected in Venezuela. And honestly, I know the Venezuelan situation pretty well because my partner worked directly with Chavez for quite a few years. And they didn't know what to do with it once they got elected. 
you know, there wasn't really, uh, you know, there was a kind of a very general vision, but in terms of a real strategy of, you know, when do you nationalize this and what section of the elites do you take on here? And, and I think personally, I think Chavez took on everybody at the same time and I, it didn't work. Um, so let's start really trying to imagine. So for example, the most outlandish of my uh, vision, but I, I think it's worth talking about, is there's been this tremendous concentration of ownership in three companies, BlackRock, uh, State Street, and Vanguard. The two biggest ones are BlackRock and Vanguard. And these are what they call asset management companies. And they invest the money that's invested in them from pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, uh, billionaires, tons of people wind up having their money there because they do these pension funds from unions, um, that mutual funds wind up putting money in them. Between those three companies, they control 90% of the S&P 500. That's essentially, they own, they essentially control every major company in the United States and, and to a large extent around the world. You know, go look at, in Europe, how much BlackRock owns. When you, it, there's barely a company, unless it's like the uh, Amazon that has a single billionaire that owns it, or um, there's a couple of others like that. But almost every company, the institutional investors are the majority owners, and the biggest owners of those are BlackRock and Vanguard. Military industrial complex, Vanguard and BlackRock. The 18 companies that make nuclear weapons, BlackRock and Vanguard. The New York Times, 95% owned by the same institutional investors. All the media that own the news, with the exception of Bloomberg, because it's another one of these privately owned things. All the media owned by the, controlled essentially by the same handful of institutional investors who, who get to control who manages, because they control the board meetings, so I can go more on about that, but just imagine a progressive government buys control of BlackRock. You don't nationalize it, you buy it. I mean, they can invent trillions of dollars just like that. So let's have a, invent enough money, buy the controlling interest of BlackRock. You just wound up controlling 90% of the corporations in the United States. Okay. Uh, th will they fight like hell? Yeah. So it all depends. Is the popular movement strong enough to defend such a policy? Okay, don't even go that far. Next time there's a big crash, and they're going to be over and over. Take one of the banks that wants bailouts and don't bail them out. Nationalize them. Nationalize, uh, they should have lash nationalized uh, Lehman Brothers. They could have nationalized Bank of America. And it's interesting, even some sections of Wall Street supported it. Now, they wanted it done only for a certain amount of time and then brought back to the private sector again. But why? Imagine a publicly owned Amazon. You raise everyone's minimum wage to 25 bucks, invest profit, a section of the profit goes back into the treasury so you can lower the taxes on workers. And you can imagine all so many things, but the problem you raise is, is for real. Concentration of ownership of the economy leads to concentration of ownership in the politics. It's what we see now. And it would be the danger if you had such centralized public ownership as you saw, for example, in the Soviet Union. Yes, 
that would lead to bureaucratization. It would lead to a concentration of political power into whoever controlled the state. But we don't live in the era of the Soviet Union anymore. You know, when the Soviet Union was trying to plan their economy, you know, they did it with a pencil and paper, maybe a typewriter. There were no computers. The bureaucratization was absolutely inevitable. The, and it was, a, it was not a multi-party system. So you have a single party system and such centralized ownership. We don't live in that era. We live in an era where you could have regional ownership of this public Amazon. You could have stuff, uh, property could be owned at the level of cities, groups of states, uh, co-ops, nonprofits. Uh, a lot of the biggest uh, health uh, insurance plans used, in fact, most of the health insurance plans in the United States and in Canada used to be nonprofit. Even now, in Canada, you have publicly owned auto insurance in British Columbia, uh, the, the booze in Ontario, the liquors controlled by a publicly owned company. Uh, in many places, the, uh, Europe and here, energy companies are publicly owned. But the, the most critical part of this is you cannot, especially in the United States, have that kind of public ownership model without genuine and serious democratization. So you got to start with finance, campaign finance reform, and, and more so, like far more drastic than just undoing Citizens United. There has to be straightforward public financing. You have to just get all this kind of money out of politics. And one of the fastest way to do that would be to ban advertising. I'd like to see just completely ban, not just television advertising, social media advertising. Everything paid should be not allowed during an election. Now, I know these things, people will say, oh, you'll never get that. Let's articulate a vision of stuff we can fight for and then figure out the tactics and strategy of building a movement. And of course, it's not like you're going to get elected and do all these things. But without a vision, a really forward-looking vision, I don't think people get inspired. I had a really interesting conversation with an African-American woman when last time I was in New York. And she lived in, in Michigan. And she supported Biden over Sanders. And as we were talking, um, it didn't matter what I say in terms of Sanders, she would have a talking point from the Democratic Party to respond to me. So, for example, I would say healthcare for all, and she would say Bernie's too old. And uh, I would say minimum wage or whatever, and she would say, oh, Bernie's divisive, and on and on and on. And it didn't matter how back, much back and forth. And then I started talking to her, not about what Bernie was saying. I started talking about, what, what, how about imagining a society where you have public ownership of the critical parts of the economy and a real democratization? All of a sudden, we were actually agreeing on stuff. So it, it's not just that if we talk better, we'll get more people. It's a combination of many factors. But in terms of this issue of public ownership, it's very critical. And it's, very, it's really interesting to me. And this is where you can actually persuade some people that, be, see, pre-Cold War in the United States, public ownership was not a bad word. If you go back and look at the uh, speeches of Roosevelt in the 30s, not only did he say that electricity, which had become a terrible monopoly and uh, extorting people should be regulated as a public utility with serious regulation. 
He said any sector of the con economy that gets monopolized is a critical sector in terms of people's needs could be made public, publicly owned. It was, a, it was a, like a part of his discourse. And most of the young American population is past the Cold War now. You know, we talked earlier about the word socialism. I mean, most, a lot of Americans don't, it's not the boogeyman anymore. So I think we need to combine uh, a vision uh, for what a future could look like with very serious demands about the, the unemployed and the poor and systemic racism. Um, we need to raise at always the issue of climate and we need to start raising the issue of nuclear war because it's not even on, the, nobody even talks about it except for a handful of people. So we have run out of time, but just quickly talk about the analysis.news that you recently launched. Um, where can viewers find it and what do you are doing with it? Well, you find it at the analysis.news. That's the name of the web. That's the URL. That's the domain line. I mean, I think analysis.com works too, but the name is analysis.news. Um, I hope that it, it becomes a place to have a, a longer conversation. I'm, right now I'm doing a lot of podcasts because it's a forum where you can kind of talk longer. Um, I want it to be a platform partly to discuss, well, what could this society look like? You know, this thing from the uh, People's Forum, Another World is Possible. Well, let's flesh out what that other world might look like in the, in the conditions we're in. And this issue of how do we have a more unified popular movement? Um, and, and, and both in terms of uh, independent movement and, and what strategy it would take towards electoral politics. So, you know, I hope we can have a kind of deeper conversation about these things. And I'll tell you one other project I really want to do once this coronavirus is over. I want to go to some Trump voting sections of either Pennsylvania or, or Michigan and start talking to Trump voters and, and work on how to do analysis so it's not just for policy wonks and progressive policy wonks, but in a way that ordinary working people can understand and, and, and also learn from them because they have very, we need to have great respect for the genuine concerns of the majority of the workers who voted for Trump or can get fooled by Biden too, for that matter. Um, and other things that they're concerned about in kind of more profound ways than, than I think to a large extent are being talked about. So that's what I hope we do. Paul Jay, journalist and award-winning filmmaker. What an interesting debate and discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you guys for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking on the bell below and to donate so we can continue to produce independent and non-profit news and analysis. I'm your host, Zen Raza. See you guys next time.